Thank you, Pastor. And uh, thank you all so much for being here tonight. And uh, hopefully you got a uh, handout on the way in. Um, anyone need one still? Let's see. Raise your hand if you do. Okay. Hey, Dad. Do you think you could grab a couple of those real quick? Okay. Uh, so get one of those handouts if you have one, and we'll, we'll get in there pretty soon. Again, thank you so much for being here, and uh, we're glad to be in town. I'm glad to be in town. Uh, I've been in and out of town uh, quite a bit over the last few weeks. Uh, this last week, I was over in West Virginia, and so that was, that was pretty neat. We had a good meeting, and, uh, but I'm glad to be home with my family and glad to see you all as well. Um, one of the things that I got to do this trip that was kind of a little bit um, unexpected, I guess, in some ways, was I got to visit a place called the Museum of the Bible. And uh, I'm curious how many of you have heard of the Museum of the Bible in D.C. It is in a fascinating location. It's right by uh, a lot of, re really about a block or two away from um, the Capitol building, from that area, that whole mall of important buildings, and right by the big Smithsonian museums. It's so close. And it's a museum that focuses on the Bible. And I've been wanting to go, really, since they opened it, and um, I got to meet up with a friend of mine from college, and uh, we got to, we drove over there, met up over there, and I uh, got to walk around and kind of nerd out at the different exhibits. And um, my poor friend, he had to listen to me explaining things <laughs> he probably didn't care to hear about, but it was a lot of fun uh, to visit that. Um, any of you been there before? I asked that in earlier. Okay, it's, if it was closer, you know, this would be like a church field trip thing we would do, but... Uh, it's obviously on the other side of the country. Um, there's a few good things on the other side of the country uh, that we have been able to go to. So this was my first time at the Museum of the Bible, um, but there's also the Creation Museum in Ohio and uh, the Ark Encounter, which probably a lot of you have heard before, um, heard of before. So really fascinating places to go to. The reason I bring that up, not just to tell you about my trip, but because uh, one of my one of the most interesting and thought-provoking exhibits at the Ark Encounter is a, a whole exhibit with probably dozens of children's books. And all of them are about Noah and the flood. And they're all different formats and pictures, and lots of people have written children's stories and children's Bible stories about Noah and the flood. And um, they put them there on exhibit to prove a point, <laughs> that so often in our well-intentioned retellings of Bible stories, um, we end up making it just a kid's story. And when you look at the front of all those books, what you see is a little wooden boat with a giraffe and an elephant and a few other animals just kind of crowding out the windows and, or up on the deck and just not enough room for one elephant, let alone all the other animals packed in around them. How many of you are familiar with this? You see those, those children's drawings, and, and they're fun, and they're, they're, they're great to have on a coloring sheet and all that. But the point of the exhibit was to show that, that in those pictures, we're, we're kind of accidentally teaching kids <laughs> that the ark is this, like, fanciful boat that really couldn't have fit all the animals, but, you know, it's the story. And so the, kind of the, one of the big goals of the ark encounter is to show you the real scale of the ark to show you how massive it is and how many huge animals it could hold. And um, it, really, it really kind of, um, it, it made me really pay attention over, since then, over the next few years, when I see kids' books, kids' Bible stories, 
paying attention to how they depict people. Does it look like it's just a cartoon, or does it seem like this is telling a real story? And um, that's hard. It's, it's hard to find books that way. But, um, you know, it's so important when we look at Bible stories, whether it's Noah and the flood, or whether it's Jesus feeding the 5,000, or anything in between, to remember that those stories are speaking about real people in real places. They're real stories from history. And um, the story that we're going to look at today, and you might see this on your handout, is the story of Jonah. We're going to look at the book of Jonah uh, for a few minutes. And I just want to remind you as we look at this that, um, that Jonah is a story of a real person in a real place, in a real time in history. And um, regardless of how he's portrayed in, in children's books, this is a real story that we need to follow and that we can learn from. Um, as we think about Jonah, uh, what's the big story about? What, what do we remember about Jonah? You can just throw it out there. Jonah swallowed by the whale, right? That's what probably everyone remembers. And um, there was a time, I, I think it was probably when I was in high school, where that kind of got my attention, and, um, and I felt like I had to figure out how this was scientifically possible. And uh, sometimes people challenge you with that, and they'll say things like, there is no whale that could fit a human uh, down its throat, and they, they'll say things like that. And as a, as a young person, I was like, wow, that's true, that's a problem for the story. And then as time went on, I realized, wait a moment, this wasn't just any whale, <laughs> it wasn't an accidental swallowing, the Bible specifically tells us that this was a a great fish, a whale, prepared by God for this purpose. And so, although there's interesting stories about maybe someone getting swallowed at some point, and some fishermen, or, or people trying to figure it out, all of that doesn't really matter because this is something God prepared. And if God can create the universe, <laughs> there's no real problem with him widening a throat and figuring out how to keep Jonah alive in the whale for a time. And, um, and so this... this it's important, though, as we look at stories like this, to remember that they are historical events in history and that Jonah himself is a historical person. Some people would look at the story of Jonah and think, maybe it's just there to teach us a lesson or teach us several lessons like we're, we'll look at today. But yet, Jonah, the book of Jonah, is not the only place that we see this man mentioned. Um, in fact, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse number 25, you see mention of him as a prophet guiding the king of Israel and of likely, as you, you read that section, uh, guiding him in battle. Uh, kings would go to prophets, whether they were true prophets or false prophets. They would go to the prophets before a battle and say, hey, should I go up? How many people should I bring? Am I going to win? Am I going to come back safe? And the prophets would, would tell them what to expect. And, um, and Jonah fulfilled that role as a true prophet of God. Um, but we also see Jonah mentioned by the most important character in the Bible, Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41, Jesus talks about Jonah as a real historical person. Um, I mentioned this in the, in the class this morning, but, or this afternoon. But um, when it comes to creation, to the first chapter or two of the Bible... Uh, if you read it just the, uh, simply, just interpret it plainly, 
you read seven days. In seven days, God created the earth and, and all the different animals and plants and the universe, the stars. And there are people, and maybe someone in here, you would follow this as well, but there are people who would say that it wasn't just seven literal days, but there were maybe ages of time there. And, um, you know, that's, that's interesting to try to interpret it and say maybe this is poetry. But you know why I believe that the earth was created and all that was in it in seven literal days? It's mainly because Jesus mentioned it. And Jesus said that in seven days the Lord made heaven and earth. And, and I'm not quoting the verse there, but he, he mentions that specifically as a historical event. And he says it as seven days. And so that's why I, I personally believe that the earth was created in seven literal days. Well, the same is true about Jonah, uh, where I would believe him to be a historical person and this to be a historical story because Jesus talked about it that way. And he used the three days and nights in the belly of the fish to, to be a, a type, a picture of what was to come in his life when he would spend three days and three nights in the tomb before his resurrection. And so he bases, that, he bases that event of the resurrection on this historical event, uh, event of Jonah and the whale. But if we think about Jonah, and we think about the story in this book, what comes to mind? We, we already mentioned the whale, but what else do we remember from the story of Jonah? Ms. Lorraine. Rebellion, okay? Who's rebellion? Jonah's rebellion, right? What else? Mm -hmm. He was. He was very angry about being the one chosen to do this. What else? What else do we remember? That's interesting, isn't it? He didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. Okay, what else? Ms. Lorraine? He could sleep in his rebellion. He gets on board that ship, and what does he do? <laughs> He disappears down below and goes to sleep. It's like, wow, <laughs> with all that in mind, like you have the omnipotent, omniscient God <laughs> who you're disobeying and you're going to go sleep in the boat. What else? What else comes to mind? Storm. Okay, that's a huge part of the story. That's why he gets thrown overboard is because there's a storm and they're, they're trying to figure out how do we calm this storm so we don't all perish. Randy? Mm -hmm. That's so interesting, though, right? He's a prophet of God. He knows better, <laughs> but he kind of gets this tunnel vision and thinks he can run from God. Go ahead, Abby. Mm -hmm. He was. And that's huge. You know, that's, that's part of what we often neglect in the story of Jonah. There's four chapters in the book of Jonah, and the, the first one, where you, hear, you see him rebelling and you see the storm, we remember that. Chapter 2, where he's praying to God from the belly of the fish and then delivered, we remember that. Chapter 3, okay, he goes off and he preaches, and they repent. And Nineveh is not destroyed. We generally remember that. And there we go. That's the story of Jonah, right? <laughs> but there's more to the story. And it's been hit on by a couple of you tonight already. Uh, what else we see in that chapter? There's another whole little story that we haven't touched on yet in that last chapter of Jonah. 
But that's where we're kind of going to get in our study tonight. We're going to get down to chapter 4, and a lot of what we're going to learn uh, comes from that chapter of this book. But we're going to look at some, you could say, traps that Jonah fell into um, as, he's, as he's turning away from the command of God. But these weren't necessarily traps because he knew full well what he was doing. <laughs> he knew what he was doing, but he's, he chose to rebel against God. He chose um, to depart uh, from the plan that God had for him. But as we look at this idea, we look at Jonah and we look at what he did, uh, the phrase comes to mind, dereliction of duty. <laughs> I have that on your notes. And, um, you know, that's probably a phrase you've heard of before. I think it's probably mostly in the military. I don't know if that's true. But dereliction of duty, you know, this is a serious thing. Well, think about this. He's, he's rebelling at the beginning. Eventually, does he obey? Yes. Okay. But the question for us is, are we going um, to turn from God? Are we going to be derelict in our duties? Or are we going to obey God? And if we're going to obey, are we going to obey willingly? And that's the key there that we're going to see in Jonah's life. So as we look at this passage, um, we're going to see something really interesting coming right at the beginning of uh, the story in the life of Jonah. And we'll, we'll uh, start by reading from Jonah chapter 1. And verse, we'll start in verse number 1, and then we'll work our way down uh, to verse number 3. So in Jonah chapter 1, the Bible says this, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, pause. Okay, why does it mention Amittai? <laughs> this happens a lot in the Bible, right? You hear a name, and then you hear son of so-and-so. And sometimes we kind of skip past it real quick. Is that fair to say? We might remember who David's father was. Who was that? Jesse, okay. We might remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But we'll probably struggle beyond most of those. Even John the Baptist. Who was John the Baptist's dad? I heard some people, but everyone was a little quieter that time. <laughs> Not quite as confident as, as Jesse and Zebedee. <laughs> you know, we, we might know it, but it starts getting vague. But all throughout the Bible, you see person after person... And most of the time, I, I think I could fairly say, most of the time, it says who their father was. Why? Legitimacy, historicity, it's telling that this is true, this is historical. And we see this all throughout Scripture, especially in the, the passages of genealogy. And uh, you can go through an entire passage and think, okay, I'm not sure I'm going to hit this section again next year in my Bible calendar, um, but I'm glad I read through it once, you know. How many of you, are, if you're honest, you think that sometimes, right? And you might skip a little past it. You don't really pronounce the whole names, you know. Just get through it. But it's so important in our Bible to have those lists of names and to have the, the very particular events and gifts and sacrificial system, all the different points of that, because it shows the truth, the history in the Bible. It, it shows that the Bible is a historical book, a book with miracles. A book that focuses on the divine, but a book that is true to history. So in Jonah chapter 1, verse number 2, we see the command of God. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah doesn't just disobey. He rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So how does he do that? 
He goes down to the city of Joppa on the Mediterranean Sea. And he leaves the area. He leaves Israel uh, to go to Tarshish to avoid uh, being where he was when God had directed him. Uh, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it, into the ship, to go with them unto Tarshish. And then what does it say? From the presence of the Lord. That's a really big deal. From the presence of the Lord. I don't know that I could say, okay, the presence of the Lord, this is exactly what it means in every scripture passage that it's mentioned. I don't know that I could do that. Um, it'd be a very interesting study. Um, but especially in the Old Testament, the presence of the Lord uh, really focuses on the, the tabernacle, later the temple, and specifically which piece of furniture? The Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. You had the cherubim there, and that was kind of, that was kind of the center of their faith, the center of, of, their, of their religious system. And other places in the Old Testament, you see the presence of the Lord, whether it's on Mount Sinai uh, when Moses goes up to get the law, or whether it's Abraham following God um, from, from Ur and then into the Promised Land area, into Canaan. But the first time we see the presence of the Lord, we also see someone fleeing from it. It wasn't Jonah that time. It was Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 8, they've already disobeyed. They disobeyed God's instructions. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And you have to be wondering what was going through their heads. <laughs> the omnipotent creator of the universe. You really think you're going to be able to hide? <laughs> but they felt shame and they decided to hide. Well, here's Jonah. Again, I'm not so sure he really felt like he could flee from God, but he, he wanted to. <laughs> he wanted to get away from there. And then it's interesting that he was, very, he was very aware of what he was doing. If you look in our text at verse number 10, the Bible says, Then were the men, talking about the sailors on the ship, the storm has come, and, and they're worried about uh, whether the, the, the ship is going to stay up. They throw uh, all their cargo out of the ship, trying to lighten it so that it stays up above the water. And they cast lots, trying to figure out whose fault this is. And the lot falls on Jonah. And they pull Jonah up, and he had been sleeping in the belly. And, and they talk to him, and ultimately they become exceedingly afraid, verse number 10 says. And said unto him, unto Jonah, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he had told them. He was well aware of what he was doing. He was well aware that he wasn't just disobeying, but that he was trying to, to flee, trying to get away from the communion with God, from the presence of God, from the grace of God. Jonah was being choosy about the tasks given to him. And you know, sometimes it is easy to do that, to put parameters on our service to God. But the best place to be is in the presence of the Lord, and the best place to be is in the center of God's will. Um, sometimes you might hear the statement, and you know, maybe I've been guilty of saying it before too, but uh, sometimes you'll hear the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. I'm not entirely sure that's true, <laughs> but it is the best place to be. Uh, for the disciples, many of whom were killed as they, as they shared Christ, 
I'm not sure they would say it was the safest place to be in God's will, but it was the best place, such that they were willing to lay down their lives. What we learned from Jonah's story here is that like Jonah, and this is your first blank, sometimes we avoid the presence of God. Sometimes we avoid the presence of God. What's interesting is that even as Jonah flees, and he leaves Israel, he leaves the homeland of the covenant promises, as he leaves, he still believes in God. <laughs> in, a, in, in chapter 2, verse number 8, while he's in the whale's belly, you see that he still believed in God, but he didn't want to serve him in this way. Jonah 2, verse number 8, the Bible says, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And that phrase, lying vanities, uh, refers to, uh, to like idolatry, to worthless idols, to these vanities that people would worship. And in the context, he's just been on this, on this boat, on this ship, where because of the storm, everyone was offering sacrifices and praying to their different gods. And they wake Jonah up saying, hey, why don't you pray to your God? Maybe he'll hear you. And here's Jonah after all that, lying there, sitting there in the, in the belly of the whale, acknowledging the worthlessness of all those idols and acknowledging the power and sovereignty of God. And he says, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Not entirely sure what that phrase means there, forsake their own mercy. But Jonah was asking for mercy from God. He wasn't asking for it from these other idols. He was asking for it from God, knowing full well that he had just fled from the presence of God. He knows he doesn't deserve forgiveness. He, doesn't, he knows he doesn't deserve a second chance, but he prays for mercy. And he gets it. And that's because God loves each and every one of us. He wants a relationship with us. And in James chapter 4, verse number 8, the Bible says this, Draw nigh to God, and then what's God do? He'll draw nigh to, your, nigh to you. And it goes on to say, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Because so often it's sin that gets in the way in our relationship with God. But when we come back to God, he doesn't just, you know, keep pacing away from us. Because he, like, like the story of the prodigal son, where the son is coming to the father, our father runs to us. Does that make sense? We draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. And you see that picture there in the prodigal son. In Jonah chapter 1, uh, you get down to verse number 8, and um, you see some questions that are asked of the, by the, the, the sailors here. And they, they already realized this was Jonah's fault, but they say, hey, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? And Jonah doesn't bother answering that question. It was, it was pretty obvious. Then they say, what is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he, Jonah, said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. <laughs> you know what's interesting here? Uh, try to set yourself back in this context. Here's all these sailors, these idolatrous sailors. They have their deities that they worship. And now they hear Jonah saying, the one you're sinning against is in charge of the sea? <laughs> he made the sea? Why in the world are you fleeing on the sea if he's in charge of the sea? <laughs> 
You know, because in, in, in the system of idolatry, usually a deity is supposed to be the deity over this part of creation and this part of creation. And what they probably failed to realize in that moment is that Jonah is saying, hey, my God is the God, the one who's over everything. But in the context, they're probably thinking, what were you thinking? <laughs> you, you know he made the sea, why are you fleeing on it? But what's, what's missing, though, in this passage, in verse number 9, what is missing in his answer? You maybe have more than one answer here, but his occupation. What was his occupation? He was a prophet. And yet, for some reason, he doesn't answer that question. He's fled from the presence of the Lord. He's a prophet of which country? <laughs> which kingdom? Israel. He's a prophet of Israel, and now he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. You wonder if he's just setting all of that aside and saying, I'm done. Not just, I'm not up for this task, God, but I'm done with being a prophet. You wonder if that's what's going on there as he flees towards Tarshish. As we continue in our story, you get to Jonah chapter 2, and uh, if you read the whole section, it's, it's mostly a prayer of Jonah. Uh, verses 1 through 9. And, and then in verse number 10, the, the Bible says, The Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. And then verse number 1 of chapter 3, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. He gets a second chance, doesn't he? And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that our God is a forgiving God, a God who lets us fall down <laughs> and then picks us back up. He gives us that second chance so many times. Uh, in verse number two, he's given those instructions, and this time it's not just arise, go into Nineveh, and cry against it, because their wickedness has come up before me, but here it's arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. And so he's given him some instructions. You wonder if there's more instructions to follow. What is he supposed to preach? What does Jonah do? He arose in verse number three, and he went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. And then we see a description of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And if you read Bible commentaries, if you read three different commentaries, you might come up with three different answers as to what three days' journey means. <laughs> but whether it's referring to the size of the city, if you were to start on one end and keep walking, which might have included suburbs and, and uh, farming areas around it, it's hard to say. Or what I would... What I think it means is that it would take three journeys, three days' journey to go through it. And here he is, he's supposed to be preaching in the city. So there's three days in the city. Either way, whether it's like this or like this, it's three days that's kind of expected for him to go through the city. What does he do? In verse number four. And Jonah began to enter into the city. How many? One day. A day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he's done. He's gone. <laughs> he leaves. You keep reading the story. He leaves town. He doesn't keep running. He doesn't flee all the way back home. He comes out of town, and then he sets up a booth. He makes a booth to sit in the shade so he can watch Nineveh get overthrown, so he can hopefully see it destroyed. And you kind of get this, this feeling that he's obeying, kind of. <laughs> he's going, he's preaching, but he's not, he doesn't, his heart's definitely not in it. And so we see, secondly, that sometimes, like Jonah, 
We stick with the bare minimum. And you see that in verses 3 and 4. You see those three days journey, but he only goes one day. You know what's interesting is how specific his message is. What's it say in verse number 4? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He knows exactly how much time it is until the prophesied destruction. He knows it's 40 days and yet he spends one day preaching and 39 days sitting out there in his booth. Isn't that interesting? You go back to the story of Noah and how long does it take Noah to build the ark? 120 years. This is obviously a time frame when people lived a lot longer and you see that early in the Old Testament. What does he do during those 120 years? He builds the ark and what else does he do? He preaches. He preaches that the judgment is coming. He preaches that this flood is coming. It's specific. It shows what the judgment's going to be. But the Bible doesn't say he preached it once and then built for 120 years. <laughs> he's building and he's preaching. And I don't know, you know how much of what he did, how much time was spent in either one, but he was preaching and he was building and people knew the judgment that was coming. People were not caught off guard. It was ultimately, did they believe him or not? Did they trust the message or not? Did they seek for refuge or not? Jonah could have done the same thing. And I'm not talking about building the booth because that wasn't part of God's instructions. But he could have spent that entire time before the judgment traveling through Nineveh preaching. And you think about it, if it's a three days journey and he has 40 days till judgment, he could take, he could go through that city 13 times, and still have a day to get out of town. <laughs> but he goes one day's journey, and he leaves. And so you kind of see his heart, his problem there. And you see that he's stuck with the bare minimum. He obeyed, but only just barely. The time clock has started, and Jonah has time to go through the city many times before needing to stay away from impending judgment. But he leaves. And he didn't leave out of fear for God's judgment on the city because he knew when that was coming. He likely left early because he didn't want Nineveh to repent. And that's what we see later on in the passage. He didn't want Nineveh to turn away from their wickedness. He may have left Nineveh a little bit because of fear of the Ninevites and the great atrocities they were known for, but that's not what we see in the text. What we see is he left because he didn't want God to have mercy on them. In Matthew chapter 5, verse number 41, Jesus gives us some good instructions about doing a task that we don't want to do, <laughs> maybe. He says, And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with them twain. And that verse there, the, the, what we understand from the time period is that Roman soldiers could compel someone to carry their pack for one mile. And yet Jesus was saying, hey, even with the enemy who's, who's telling you to do something, go that second, go double, go twice as far, go the second mile. And now that phrase, go the second mile, is just in our culture. <laughs> People say it all the time without even realizing where it came from. But that was part of the ethic that Jesus was teaching while he was traveling and preaching um, almost 2,000 years ago. What we learn from both Matthew and what we learn from Jonah's bad example is that we should look for ways to help. Maybe you've heard the, the statement, see the need, take the lead. And uh, the word that we use for that, the character, is initiative. <laughs> Having initiative. 
And there's so many areas in life that um, that initiative can come into play. And if we all lived by it, our world would be a wonderful place. <laughs> but it's very easy to, to only pay attention to things when someone's watching. <laughs> or to only pay attention to things, only to be faithful in things when, when someone else sees it. Um, there's a song, I think it's from Patch the Pirate. Finish the job, finish the job, get it done. I'm not going to sing it to you. And the next phrase, finish the job, finish the job, then have fun. <laughs> and uh, it's just a reminder to not just start something, but to complete it. And really, Jonah started obeying, but I can't really say he finished. <laughs> because he, he, he just barely put the effort into it. Something else we learned from Jonah is that like Jonah, sometimes we only focus on judgment. That's interesting. Think about this. The message that Jonah was told to preach was a message of judgment, wasn't it? He was told to tell them, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And he goes and he tells them, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown in verse number 4 of chapter 3. The message of judgment was in obedience to God, but Jonah didn't wait around for further revelation for the Ninevites. He didn't wait around to guide them in their repentance. He just leaves. In verse number 2, we already read this. He's told, Arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. And so you wonder if there, were second, a sec, well, if there was going to be a second part, a part two to his sermon, but he wasn't around to preach it. Jonah evidently avoided any offer of hope to the Ninevites. But what's interesting is he believed there was hope for them. When we read Jonah, we never see God promising the Ninevites hope. We never see him promising them a way out. And if you look at chapter number 3, you see Jonah preaching in verse number 4. By verse number 5, they're fasting, they're putting on sackcloth from the least to the greatest, all the way up to the king. They're not even feeding their animals because they're making their animals mourn with them. They're, they're showing their repentance as they turn from their wicked ways. Why? In verse number 9, who can tell if God will turn and repent? And turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. And ultimately in verse number 10, what we see is that God does just that. God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And now the judgment that he was bringing on them for the wrong that they had been doing, well, it doesn't exactly apply anymore because they've turned around, they've repented. And so there isn't anything left to punish, if you want to look at it that way. And he had said that he, and so it says, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. So they get mercy, they get grace. But this is what Jonah expressly did not want to happen. In Jonah chapter 4, verse number 2, we see Jonah's second prayer. In Jonah chapter 2, he's praying. Where is he praying from? The belly of the whale. What is he praying for? Mercy for himself. <laughs> He doesn't deserve it, but he wants a second chance. And then by chapter number four, he's preached that bare minimum. And now he's sitting in his booth and he's praying. And we see his booth come in verse number five. But he's sitting out there after he's preached and he's praying to God saying, basically, God, why? Why are you not following through on your judgment uh, that I just told them about? Verse number two, he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? 
when I was back in Israel. Wasn't this what I was worried about? Therefore, for this reason, because of your mercy, I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. The initial prayer of Jonah was in the belly of the whale, a prayer for mercy. The second prayer is outside Nineveh, and it's a prayer for death. And we see that in verse number uh, 3. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He felt very strongly about the Ninevites deserving their punishment. But we see, and he knew, the character of God. That even though God hadn't promised any hope, hope was kind of expected. You see that in Joel chapter 2, verse number 13, and I put the reference in your notes. Rend your heart and not your garments. What did we see in the response in chapter 3? They put on sackcloth, and you see that kind of ritual mourning that probably involved them tearing their garments and putting ashes on their heads. But the Bible says in Joel 2, rend your heart and not your garments. It's more important what's happening inside your heart than what you're showing to the world. And then he said this, Turn unto the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. I want you to think for a moment about the way that we might share Christ. If we are disciples of Christ, the greatest opportunity, the greatest task that we have is to share Christ with other people. And there's lots of ways we can do that. We can share a testimony. We can just walk through Bible passages. One of the ways that I was taught was uh, with five simple points that kind of walk you through the gospel and what it means for us. You might start with this. We're sinners. We see that in Romans chapter 3. Sin separates us from God. The penalty for sin is death. We see that in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin. We see that God loves us. The most well-known verse in the Bible is probably John 3.16. God so loved the world. Fourth, Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin. He died for our sins and he rose again. And we can see that in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. And that fifth point is our responsibility in it all. It's simply to personally put our trust in Christ and accept him as our personal Savior through faith. And there's a lot more you probably should talk about (laughs) in the gospel, but that's, that's the basics of it. But what if all we did when we were talking to people about their need for salvation was say, we're all sinners and we deserve to die. The penalty for sin is death. And we just left it at that. You're missing out on the, the point of the gospel, which is that God loved us so much, he came to earth, he sent his son to die for us so that we could have a restored relationship with God, so we could have eternal life. And yet, that's exactly what Jonah was doing. He preached the judgment without the hope. He preached the condemnation without the way out. Without even the possibility of a way out in their situation. And so I just want to remind us that like Jonah, sometimes we only focus on judgment. Let's be careful with that. Um, Some of you have maybe heard of Westboro Baptists. They're a good example of this. (laughs) like to protest with just judgment and nothing else. Um, There's other areas of of current events in particular that we could talk about. Um, Briefly, I'll mention abortion. Abortion is terrible. It's one of the, I think about it, it it 
really makes me so sad how many people have been killed through abortion. And this happens not just in America, but all around the world. Where we're at, there are, there's a lot of abortion. And I remember walking home from school every day in New York City. We'd walk by this church, and they had a big sign out front. And I can't remember the exact number, but it said, Abortion stops a human heart from beating. And I think it said 10,000 times a day. Wow. Think about how many people are being killed. And it's important for us to stand against things like abortion and to, to uh, make sure that we're voting in ways and supporting causes that, um, that would prevent abortion and maybe help adoption and help young mothers who keep their babies and things like that. But let's not forget that God is not only the just and holy God, but he's the loving and merciful God. And so for even the people who've, who've done the terrible thing of going through with an abortion, guess what? There's mercy for them. There's grace for them. God still loves them. And there are people, I don't know if, if in our church we've ever had someone like that. It's quite possible statistically, you know. And yet God still loves you. God still loves you even with your past, even with the mistakes you've made. God still loves you. And even though we know what's right and what's wrong, God's offered forgiveness. And you go back to Scripture and you see that there were murderers in the Bible that God forgave. Great examples of the Apostle Paul. He was someone who was persecuting the church, seeing people killed and thrown into prison. And so we can look at him causing the deaths of others. And guess what? God forgave him and God used him in a mighty way. And so let's not forget that although it's important to, to, focus, to, to, to mention the judgment like this and to mention the judgment that is to come that we all deserve, let's not forget the hope. Let's not forget the love. Additionally, as we go on in our passage, we go to Jonah chapter 4. We get to verse number 11, the last chapter in the passage. Last chapter, excuse me, the last verse in the, in the book. And it says, and this is God talking to Jonah when Jonah was upset. God says, and should not I spare Nineveh, that great city? Wherein are more than six score, that's 120,000 persons, that cannot discern between their right hand and their left. What, what does that mean? Probably children, right? They can't discern from their right hand to the left. So if you take it at that you know, plain understanding, you're looking at a whole lot of kids, and then what else does he mention? <laughs> and much cattle. And he just ends. That's it. That's the end of the book. There's no real conclusion. It's just, hey, Jonah, you're angry about people turning to God. You're angry about the forgiveness so that they don't see the judgment that they did deserve. You're angry about God being merciful. And you'd rather have seen 120,000 kids killed, a bunch of cattle killed. You know what you see? You see a God who cares about the sparrow, a God who cares about the cattle, a God who cares about every single one of us regardless of our past. And here's Jonah he, that, who is sitting there wanting to see Nineveh destroyed and forgetting that in the process, there's a whole lot of innocent people and animals that would be killed in the process. And so what do we learn from this? Like Jonah, sometimes we lump the innocent in with the guilty. We lump the innocent in with the guilty. Jonah desired judgment on all the Ninevites. But God sees the innocent in the midst of the guilty. Really, a uh, really relevant example today, we think about wars in the Middle East. And we think about some of those battlegrounds and realize that 
as much as things need to happen militarily, and um, there's a lot of, uh, that's a discussion for another time, realize that in the midst, and in the midst of areas that are dominated by extremists and dominated by people who have committed serious atrocities that should go punished, should be punished, there are people there who are innocents. And there are people there who are Christians. There are people there who are seeking for the truth. And so it's not right for us to just lump them all together and say, just wipe that entire problem off the map, because then in a way we're being worse than they were. Because of the innocence. Because of the people who are maybe seeking for the truth. In the midst of the oppressive Roman army in the first century, there were seekers like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. In the midst of the condemning Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus to death, there were sympathizers like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who would follow Jesus Christ, who did not consent him to his death. And so let's not lump the innocent in with the guilty. Something to think about. Fifth, like Jonah, sometimes we spend our time Get this, this is pointed. Watching the world burn instead of helping to rescue it. Jonah leaves town. He sets up a booth for the express purpose of watching Nineveh get destroyed, watching it get overthrown. Jonah chapter 4, verse number 5. He went out of the city. He sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. But Jonah wasn't the only one in the Bible who desired judgment on those who treated the people of God wrongly. And that's maybe why he desired the Ninevites to be destroyed, because of the atrocities they had committed. In Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56, you see Jesus and his disciples passing through Samaria. And their purpose was to get to Jerusalem. And when the Samaritans realized that, they were like, all right, just keep going. You know, they didn't welcome him into their town. They just said, keep going, you're headed to Jerusalem. And James and John are like, say what? <laughs> you know, we sent people ahead to prepare the way for this teacher, and you're just saying, keep going? And so they ask Jesus, they suggest to Jesus, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias, Elijah did, talking about Mount Carmel with the standoff between Elijah and the prophets of Baal? But he, Jesus, turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. <laughs> That's a sharp rebuke. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so what does he do? Does he call down fire from heaven? He just goes on to another village. Just like he told the disciples as he sent them out, just if they reject you, just wipe the sand off your feet and keep going. Wipe the dust off your feet and keep going. Sometimes we spend our time, though, watching the world burn instead of helping to rescue it. That's what James and John were kind of hoping for. <laughs> That's what uh, here Jonah was doing. And then we go on and we see in verses 6 through 11 of the same chapter, we see this little story that we often forget about. Maybe you've read the book of Jonah before. This is the part we forget. We, there's the booth, and then there's this last little story, verse number 6. And the Lord God prepared a gourd, some type of plant, and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head. Why? To deliver him from his grief. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. We see in the context that part of that was the sun and uh, giving him shade. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. So God gives him something. What does he do next? He takes it away. 
Verse number uh, seven, but God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. This is the second time he said this. First time it was because Nineveh repented and God gave them mercy. Now it's because he's not comfortable enough while he tries to watch their destruction. Isn't that interesting? And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. (laughs) He's serious about this. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. You had pity on the gourd, you had pity on yourself and your comfort, but you didn't have pity on Nineveh, and that's where that last verse comes, talking about the 120,000 innocents and the animals. And so we see, the sixthly, like Jonah, sometimes we value our own comfort over other people's fate. And, um, you know, that you can apply that however you feel the need, but I want, you to, you to, I want to remind you how Jesus lived on this earth. And I realize he's not called us all to the same lifestyle, But think about the contrast between Jonah and Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 58, where Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. (laughs) That's quite the contrast, isn't it? Because God valued people, God valued the message a whole lot more than his comfort. Jonah was completely the other way around. There's a lot more that we could learn from from this book. And that's just kind of scratching the surface a little bit. But reminding us that there's more to the story than just Jonah gets swallowed by the whale and gets a second chance. And Nineveh turns to God. Um, one way that one of my teachers recently, he said, uh, he said, I was reading this Bible story. I think someone gave it to his kids and he's reading it. It's about Jonah. And it talks about him getting uh, thrown up on land and he gets up and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches the love of God. And they turn to God. <laughs> it's like, it's not exactly how it went down. <laughs> Jonah preached that they, would, that they would be overthrown. Forty days and Nineveh would be destroyed. That's what Jonah preached. But God provided mercy. Let's remember that. And um, God is a holy God. He's a just God. He's a loving God. And he wants to use us. But the question is, are we going to be derelict in our duty? Or are we going to obey? And if we obey, are we going to obey wholeheartedly? Willful, willing obedience. That's the question for today. And I hope that's a little bit of a challenge and a little bit of a help. Again, there's a lot more we could have focused on, but that's a little insight from the book of Jonah. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Um, Like the Ninevites, we don't deserve your mercy. Like Jonah, we don't deserve second chances. We deserve judgment. And yet you came to earth. You sent your son to die for us so that our record could be made right, so that we could have righteousness applied to our account, so that we could have a relationship with you. We don't deserve it, but we're sure thankful for it. I pray that you would give us opportunity and boldness to share that message of both the holiness of God and the mercy that you offer to the world around us. We sure do love you. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Okay.